Section 53 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one d section fifty three chapter forty seven part two so little skill or so small means had the courtiers in james's reign for managing elections that this house of commons showed rather a strong spirit of liberty than the foregoing and instead of entering upon the business of supply as urged by the king who made them several liberal offers of grace they immediately resumed the subject which had been opened last parliament and disputed his majesty's power of levying new customs and impositions by the mere authority of his prerogative it is remarkable that in their debates on the subject the courtiers frequently pleaded as a precedent the example of all the other hereditary monarchs in europe and particularly mentioned the kings of france and spain nor was this reasoning received by the house either with surprise or indignation the members of the opposite party either contented themselves with denying the justness of the inference or they disputed the truth of the observation and a patriot member in particular sir roger owen even in arguing against the impositions frankly allowed that the king of england was endowed with as ample a power and prerogative as any prince in christendom the nations on the continent we may observe enjoyed still in that age some small remains of liberty and the english were possessed of little more the commons applied to the lords for a conference with regard to the new impositions a speech of neil bishop of lincoln reflected on the lower house begat some altercation with the peers and the king seized the opportunity of dissolving immediately with great indignation a parliament which had shown so firm a resolution of retrenching his prerogative without communicating in return the smallest supply to his necessities he carried his resentment so far as even to throw into prison some of the members who had been the most forward in their opposition to his measures in vain did he plead in excuse for this violence the example of elizabeth and other princes of the line of tudor as well as plantagenet the people and the parliament without abandoning forever all their liberties and privileges could acquiesce in none of these precedents how ancient and frequent soever and were the authority of such precedents admitted the utmost that could be inferred is that the constitution of england was at that time an inconsistent fabric whose jarring and discordant parts must soon destroy each other and from the dissolution of the old beget some new form of civil government more uniform and consistent in the public and avowed conduct of the king and the house of commons throughout his whole reign there appears a sufficient cause of quarrel and mutual disgust yet are we not to imagine that this was the sole foundation of that jealousy which prevailed between them during debates in the house it often happened that a particular member more ardent and zealous than the rest would display the higher sentiments of liberty which the commons contented themselves to hear with silence and seeming approbation and the king informed of these harangues concluded the whole house to be infected with the same principles and to be engaged in a combination against his prerogative the king on the other hand though he valued himself extremely on his kingcraft and perhaps was not altogether incapable of dissimulation 
seems to have been very little endowed with the gift of secrecy but openly at his table in all companies inculcated those monarchical tenets which he had so strongly imbibed before a numerous audience he had expressed himself with great disparagement of the common law of england and had given the preference in the strongest terms to the civil law and for this indiscretion he found himself obliged to apologize in a speech to the former parliament as a specimen of his usual liberty of talk we may mention a story though it passed some time after which we meet with in the life of waller and which that poet used frequently to repeat when waller was young he had the curiosity to go to court and he stood in the circle and saw james dine where among other company there sat at table two bishops neil and andrews the king proposed aloud this question whether he might not take his subjects money when he needed it without all this formality of parliament neil replied god forbid you should not for you are the breath of our nostrils andrews declined answering and said he was not skilled in parliamentary cases but upon the king's urging him and saying he would admit of no evasion the bishop replied pleasantly why then i think your majesty may lawfully take my brother neil's money for he offers it the favourite had hitherto escaped the inquiry of justice but he had not escaped that still voice which can make itself be heard amidst all the hurry and flattery of a court and astonishes the criminal with a just representation of his most secret enormities conscious of the murder of his friend somerset received small consolation from the enjoyments of love or the utmost kindness and indulgence of his sovereign the graces of his youth gradually disappeared the gaiety of his manners was obscured his politeness and obliging behaviour were changed into sullenness and silence and the king whose affections had been engaged by these superficial accomplishments began to estrange himself from a man who no longer contributed to his amusement the sagacious courtiers observed the first symptoms of this disgust somerset's enemies seized the opportunity and offered a new minion to the king george villiers a youth of one-and-twenty younger brother of a good family returned at this time from his travels and was remarked for the advantages of a handsome person genteel air and fashionable apparel at a comedy he was purposely placed full in james's eye and immediately engaged the attention and in the same instant the affections of that monarch ashamed of his sudden attachment the king endeavoured but in vain to conceal the partiality which he felt for the handsome stranger and he employed all his profound politics to fix him in his service without seeming to desire it he declared his resolution not to confer any office on him unless entreated by the king and he pretended that it should only be in complaisance to her choice he would agree to admit him near his person the queen was immediately applied to but she well knowing the extreme to which the king carried these attachments refused at first to lend her countenance to this new passion it was not till entreated by abbot archbishop of canterbury a decent prelate and one much prejudiced against somerset that she would condescend to oblige her husband by asking his favour of him and the king thinking now that all appearances were fully saved no longer constrained his affection but immediately bestowed his office of cup-bearer on young villiers the whole court was thrown into parties between the two minions while some endeavoured to advance the rising fortunes of villiers others deemed it safer to adhere to the established credit of somerset the king himself divided between inclination and decorum increased the doubt and ambiguity of the courtiers and the stern jealousy of the old favourite who refused every advance of friendship from his rival begat perpetual quarrels between their several partisans 
but the discovery of somerset's guilt in the murder of overbury at last decided the controversy and exposed him to the ruin and infamy which he so well merited an apothecary's apprentice who had been employed in making up the poisons having retired to flushing began to talk very freely of the whole secret and the affair at last came to the ears of trumbull the king's envoy in the low countries by his means sir ralph winwood secretary of state was informed and he immediately carried the intelligence to james the king alarmed and astonished to find such enormous guilt in a man whom he had admitted into his bosom sent for sir edward coke chief justice and earnestly recommended to him the most rigorous and unbiased scrutiny this injunction was executed with great industry and severity the whole labyrinth of guilt was carefully unravelled the lesser criminals sir jervis elvis lieutenant of the tower franklin western mrs turner were first tried and condemned somerset and his countess were afterwards found guilty northampton's death a little before had saved him from a like fate it may not be unworthy of remark that coke in the trial of mrs turner told her that she was guilty of the seven deadly sins she was a whore a bawd a sorcerer a witch a papist a felon and a murderer and what may more surprise us bacon the attorney-general took care to observe that poisoning was a popish trick such were the bigoted prejudices which prevailed poisoning was not itself sufficiently odious if it were not represented as a branch of popery stove tells us that when the king came to newcastle on his first entry into england he gave liberty to all the prisoners except those who were confined for treason murder and papistry when one considers these circumstances that furious bigotry of the catholics which broke out in the gunpowder conspiracy appears the less surprising all the accomplices in overbury's murder received the punishment due to their crime but the king bestowed a pardon on the principals somerset and the countess it must be confessed that james's fortitude had been highly laudable had he persisted in his first intention of consigning over to severe justice all the criminals but let us still beware of blaming him too harshly if on the approach of the fatal hour he scrupled to deliver into the hands of the executioner persons whom he had once favoured with his most tender affections to soften the rigour of their fate after some years imprisonment he restored them to their liberty and conferred on them a pension with which they retired and languished out old age in infamy and obscurity their guilty loves were turned into the most deadly hatred and they passed many years together in the same house without any intercourse or correspondence with each other several historians in relating these events have insisted much on the dissimulation of james's behaviour when he delivered somerset into the hands of the chief justice on the insolent menaces of that criminal on his peremptory refusal to stand a trial and on the extreme anxiety of the king during the whole progress of this affair allowing all these circumstances to be true of which some are suspicious if not palpably false the great remains of tenderness which james still felt for somerset may perhaps be sufficient to account for them that favourite was high-spirited and resolute rather to perish than live under the infamy to which he was exposed james was sensible that the pardoning of so great a criminal which was of itself invidious would still become still more unpopular if his obstinate and stubborn behaviour on his trial should augment the public hatred against him at least the unreserved confidence in which the king had indulged his favourite for several years might render somerset master of so many secrets that it is impossible without further light to assign the particular reason of that superiority which it is said he appeared so much to assume 
the fall of somerset and his banishment from court opened the way for villiers to mount up at once to the full height of favour of honours and of riches had james's passion been governed by common rules of prudence the office of cup-bearer would have attached villiers to his person and might well have contented one of his age and family nor would any one who was not cynically austere have much censured the singularity of the king's choice in his friends and favourites but such advancement was far inferior to the fortune which he intended for his minion in the course of a few years he created him viscount villiers earl marquis and duke of buckingham knight of the garter master of the horse chief justice and heir warden of the sack ports master of the king's bench office steward of westminster constable of windsor and lord high admiral of england his mother obtained the title of countess of buckingham his brother was created viscount purbeck and a numerous train of needy relations were all pushed up into credit and authority and thus the fond prince while he meant to play the tutor to his favourite and to train him up in the rules of prudence and politics took an infallible method by loading him with premature and exorbitant honours to render him forever rash precipitate and insolent a young minion to gratify with pleasure a necessitous family to supply with riches were enterprises too great for the, the empty exchequer of james in order to obtain a little money the cautionary towns must be delivered up to the dutch a measure which has been severely blamed by almost all historians and i may venture to affirm that it has been censured much beyond its real weight and importance when queen elizabeth advanced money for the support of the infant republic besides the view of securing herself against the power and ambition of spain she still reserved the prospect of reimbursement and she got consigned into her hands the three important fortresses of flushing the Breel and ramekins as pledges for the money due to her indulgent to the necessitous condition of the states she agreed that debt should bear no interest and she stipulated that if ever england should make a separate peace with spain she should pay the troops which garrisoned those fortresses after the truce was concluded between spain and the united provinces the states made an agreement with the king and the debt which then amounted to eight hundred thousand pounds should be discharged by yearly payments of forty thousand pounds and as five years had elapsed the debt was now reduced to six hundred thousand pounds and in fifteen years more if truce were renewed it would be finally extinguished but of this sum twenty six thousand pounds a year were expended on the pay of the garrisons the remaining alone accrued to the king and the states weighing these circumstances thought that they made james a very advantageous offer when they expressed their willingness on the surrender of the cautionary towns to pay him immediately two hundred and fifty thousand pounds and to incorporate the english garrisons in their army it occurred also to the king that even the payment of forty thousand pounds a year was precarious and depended on the accident that the truce should be renewed between spain and the republic if war broke out the maintenance of the garrisons lay upon england alone a burden very useless and too heavy for the slender revenues of that kingdom that even during the truce the dutch straitened by other expenses were far from being regular in their payments and the garrisons were at present in danger of mutinying for want of subsistence that the annual sum of fourteen thousand pounds the whole saving on the dutch payments amounted in fifteen years to no more than two hundred and ten thousand pounds whereas two hundred and fifty thousand pounds were offered immediately a larger sum and if money be computed at ten per cent the current interest more than doubled the sum to which england was entitled that if james waited till the whole debt were discharged the troops which composed the garrisons remained a burden upon him 
and could not be broken without receiving some consideration for their past service that the cautionary towns were only a temporary restraint upon the hollanders and in the present emergence the conjunction of interests between england and the republic was so intimate as to render all other ties superfluous and no reasonable measure for mutual support would be wanting from the dutch even though freed from the dependence of these garrisons that the exchequer of the republic was at present very low insomuch that they found a difficulty now that the aids of france were withdrawn to maintain themselves in that posture of defence which was requisite during the truce with spain and that the spaniards were perpetually insisting with the king on the restitution of these towns as belonging to their crown and no cordial alliance could ever be made with that nation while they remained in the hands of the english these reasons together with his urgent wants induced the king to accept of caron's offer and he evacuated the cautionary towns which held the states in a degree of subjection and which an ambitious and enterprising prince would have regarded as his most valuable possessions this is the date of the full liberty of the dutch commonwealth end of section fifty three chapter forty seven part two read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama